West Bowles, good morning. You just need to know this is the scariest morning of the year for me because I, I feel like I'm used to standing right here. And if I step forward and get excited, I'm going. So if I go, just, just close in a song and, and go. I'll be fine, all right? <laughs> hey, thank you for being here this morning. I've seen some new faces. If it's your first time, uh, we really appreciate you being here. My name's Nathan. I'm the pastor here at the church. And we simply are a church. And you can see it over the doors as you come in the sanctuary. We're a church that wants to connect. We want you to connect with Jesus, connect with people, and we want to connect people with Jesus. That is all we're about here. And so, as Steve mentioned, there's the opportunity to do that this next week by way of the Christmas show. I would urge you to get your tickets today because there's going to be a price increase at the door, okay? Um, let's just pick a number. A grand. It's going to be a grand if you wait. I don't think I have the authority to do that, but I'm, I'm going to try it. So, anyhow, um, no, get your tickets today. You can also get them online and then a week from Wednesday also, um, another opportunity to come and connect with Jesus, with people, and connect people with Jesus. We'll be having an acoustic uh, Christmas worship night, and you'll have more details on that very soon here. So, all that being said, uh, I was reflecting this last week, and I was thinking about a year ago at this time, it was about seven in the morning, I was sitting at our kitchen table, and many of you know our now six-year-old son, Lincoln, he was five at the time, he came down the stairs, and he said, Dad, Dad, I said, yes, buddy. He said, at Christmas? I said, uh-huh. And then he said, when Jesus comes down the chimney? <laughs> oh, okay, wait a second, what'd you say? He said, at Christmas, when Jesus comes down the chimney. And in my mind, I was kind of debating how to respond. I thought, you know, this is cute at this age, but you're going to get me fired, like, because I'm a pastor. I didn't say that. Um, and then the next thought that came into my mind was, well, I didn't teach him that. What has mommy been teaching him? <laughs> I didn't say that either till just now, because I realized he could get me fired, but I could get me hospitalized, and so... Um, if anybody has a couch for me to sleep on, that'd be great. Love you, hon. All right, so anyhow, it all brings up the question, who is Jesus to you and I at Christmas? Because as I thought about our son's statement there a little bit, as, as funny as it is and maybe as absurd as, it, as, it, as we picture it in our mind, I realized that it really perfectly describes how I've spent many Christmases thinking about Jesus. That if I, I almost thought of him like Santa Claus, that if I would just behave, then he would give me something in return. And if I didn't behave, then there was going to be a penalty. And I realized that what I was really after all those Christmases was a what, not the who that the season is about. And so I sat and I reflected on that, and I thought, isn't it true that our Christmases feel so much less full when we're focused on the what, not the who. In fact, we said it like this last week, that the content at Christmas have who, not what, as the content of their Christmas. The content at Christmas have who, not what, as the content of their Christmas. And so last week as we wrapped up, we said over these next few weeks, we're just going to look at a few different practices. And these aren't all the practices out there. These are just a few different practices each week as we head into Christmas, and it, it'll help us really reframe our perspective on Christmas. And as we look at Christmas, 
we say, what if the content, what if the content of Christmas was actually a who? Now, this week, that first practice, I, I, wanna, I want us to think about this word preparing, preparation, because when I think about how I prepare for Christmas, it gives me a picture of how I'm seeing him at Christmas. Let me explain. What do we spend most of our time, most of our energy, most of our effort, most of our money getting ready for as we head toward Christmas? Oftentimes, it's a what, isn't it? I mean, I sum it up this way. It's meals, deals, and ideals, isn't it? I mean, think about, think about just, just ask yourself, if that holiday meal we have planned were to get screwed up, what's going on inside you right now? It's probably a little bit of panic. If I don't get that deal that I've had my eye on, that I missed at Black Friday, what's going on inside of me? If things aren't ideal at Christmas, that could be a traveling thing, it could be a decoration thing, it could be a relationships thing. If that doesn't go just right, what's going on inside of me? And I would imagine that if I look in the mirror, as I've looked in the mirror, and I'd imagine as I look out the window at other people's lives, there's probably a sense of panic, maybe more than we would want. And it's because in our hearts, we really are preparing for the what of Christmas a lot. And oftentimes, we prepare so much for the what that we can distort, overlook, push aside the preparation for the who. And so today, I want us to look at one life, one life that was specifically designated to prepare the way for the arrival of Jesus. And it's a man that the prophet Isaiah said this was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare for the advent, prepare for the arrival of Jesus in our lives. And if we were to look at the, the passage that we started to look at last week, John, the gospel writer John, he brings further clarity to what Isaiah and who Isaiah was talking about. Here's what John says. In John chapter 1, verse 6, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John the writer isn't referring to himself. He's referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And it's interesting because John gives us a clue as to what preparing for the arrival of Jesus actually looks like. And he brings another word to it. He says, witness. Witness. And as you think through this life of John the Baptist, as we're going to do today, there are some elements of this life, this witness, that specifically direct us into how to prepare and how to make the content of Christmas much more related to a who than a what. In fact, John continues. He says, the first thing that's got to happen for a witness, I mean, just think about it. Think about a witness in a courtroom. What makes a witness a witness? They saw something. They saw something. And John points us to what John the Baptist saw in, in verse 32. He says, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And so it's interesting. John is uniquely positioned to see a couple things. The first thing he sees is who Jesus actually is, that he is the Son of God. 
And I would argue that each and every single person in here, see, it's easy to look at John the Baptist and go, well, that was him, Nathan. That was him. He was positioned. And the gospel writer John would actually, as you look further in his book, he turns around and he looks at his readers. And he looks at us and he says, actually, you're positioned. That right now, somewhere in the midst of all the what of Christmas, you are uniquely positioned. And I am uniquely positioned to see personally. Did you notice John's language? It was first person. Personally see the work of, the nature of, the doing of, the being of God, of Jesus in our midst. But John isn't done because John, with all this perspective, also points out something else that he saw. The next verse says, the next day, this is verse 35, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, now, now think about that. This is John the Baptist, and he's got his own followers. And if I'm in John's shoes, and I'm got, I've got my own followers, I'm wanting to point at who? I'm wanting to point at me. I don't want to point out anybody else, but John the Baptist does something different. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Okay, well, wait a second. So they... John, you had these followers, and after you saw God, you pointed at him, and that meant they were going to leave you, John. He said, yeah, I know. I know. And I'm okay with that. They, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Not like a, what do you want, get away, but truly, what do you want? They said, rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? In other words, where are you staying? Because we want to go with you. See, John the Baptist was uniquely positioned. Here's part of what he witnessed. He witnessed the activity of God, but he also witnessed and he also saw the needs and the wants of human beings. And that is very unique positioning, but it is not unfamiliar because this is a time of year. Is it not true that at Christmas, for all the lights and for all the sales and for all the meals and all the family and all the friends and all the, fa the festivities, isn't it true that we also become very glaringly aware of people's needs and wants? Maybe more this time of year than any other time of year. Oftentimes, the needs are greatest at this time of year, and everything gets magnified because we remember our loved ones. And we think about our needs. And we think about time together. And John the Baptist is uniquely positioned to see there's God and there are people. And there's God and there are people. And there's God and there are people. And here is an opportunity to connect them with one another. And so the first element of preparing for Christmas to making who the content of our Christmas is really looking around for the who, not the what. Years ago, our family knew this guy who, have you ever seen somebody in public and you just think, that person is definitely a department store Santa Claus? Like, you can just look at them. And they don't, they don't do anything to change their appearance. It's like they're asking to be asked to be a department store Santa Claus. So we knew one of these guys years ago. And he had done, like, for decades, he had been a department store Santa Claus. And I remember overhearing him one time talk to somebody. And they said, you know, what do you like about doing this? I mean, because 
the person was just explaining, to me, it just looks like kids, like crying and whining and long lines and long hours and not much appreciation. And everybody's just asking for what you can give them. And he said, well, I sit in a very unique position every single Christmas. And I just, I'll never forget what he said. He said, I sit there and I see kids who, because they know what time of year it is and who they see watching them, they're acting like adults. And they're on their best behavior. Adults, on the other hand, because of the lines and because of the season and because of all the stress, the adults are acting like kids. And I thought that's so interesting. Here's this Santa Claus, department store Santa Claus, uniquely positioned to see two things. The activity of adults and the activity of kids. And John the Baptist, here he is, he's uniquely positioned to see the activity of God and the wants and the needs of people. And then I come to you and I and I think, oh my goodness, are we not uniquely positioned at Christmas time especially to see the activity of God and the needs and the wants of people? See, the first element of preparing for Christmas is learning to look around. It's looking around for the who, not the what, of Christmas. But there, there's something else you need to be a witness. A witness had to have seen something, but they had to have seen it somewhere. There was a setting, there was a location that they had to have seen it. And as you look into the book of Luke, it's, this is in Luke chapter 3, Luke highlights something that I want you to see here that comes from the life of this witness, John the Baptist. He's, Luke is talking about the different people that were in power that made life really, really, really difficult at times for anybody who didn't line up with their way of seeing things. And he talks about Caesar in power, and then he says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Do you notice where that happened? In the desert, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is so interesting to me because where did the word of God come to John? What was that word? The wilderness, in the desert. When you wake up every single morning, is your first thought, I'm going to the desert today? No, I don't know anybody who thinks that. But let me read, let me just read this one more time. Luke says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. See, when I get up in the morning, I don't really think wilderness. I think mountaintop. I want to go to the mountaintop today. I want to be inspired. I want something incredible to happen on the mountaintop. We don't want the wilderness. But let me, let me read something to you. Thomas Merton, Thomas Merton has something to say about the desert. He says, the desert fathers believed that the wilderness had been created as supremely valuable in the eyes of God precisely because it had no value to men. The wasteland was the land that could never be wasted by men because it offered them nothing. There was nothing to attract them. There was nothing to exploit. The desert was the region in which the chosen people had wandered for 40 years, cared for by God alone. They could have reached the promised land in a few months if they had traveled directly to it. God's plan was that they should learn to love him in the wilderness and that they should always look back upon the time in the desert as, idyll as the idyllic time of their life with him 
alone. That's kind of a uh, really beautiful description of a not-so-beautiful place, isn't it? That the Word of God would come to John, and maybe the Word of God comes to us most readily in the desert. That's hard to think about. But then I start thinking about, back through Scripture, and I think about Moses. He's there in the desert. There's a burning bush, and from this burning bush, God speaks to him, and John discovers something. That what he thought was dry ground, God tells him, no, this is holy ground. This is very holy ground because something happens. And this is really for everybody in here who, as you think about this time of year and you, you think, well, I, I really should, I should tune into Jesus. I should, I should love Jesus more. I should, and you're, you're just saying, I should, I should, I ought, I ought, I wish. This is for you because it's in the desert where Moses discovered, and John discovered, and you and I discover that what feels like a dry time, right? When, when we're not really feeling our faith, what do we call it? A drought. And we say, I'm dry. That on really dry ground, God says, I can turn that into holy ground. That when my word shows up in the desert, the desert turns into a mountaintop, doesn't it? See, the first part of preparation is looking around for the who, not the what, at God's activity and the people. But the second part of preparation is recognizing that right now, on, on whatever dry ground or solid ground or whatever ground you feel like you're standing on right now, that this is the opportunity for the activity of God in our own lives. That this dry ground could become holy ground. I was reminded of this in a little bit different setting a couple weeks ago. Uh, we went sledding the day after Thanksgiving over on Ken Carroll Hill over here. It's a great sledding hill. But I realized a few things about sledding hills. First of all, I looked around and I was like, why is there nobody over the age of like 45 at these things? Like ever. And then I was reminded, I had like all these grandiose visions of when I, was sled as, when I would sled as a kid. And you remember, you just kind of like threw caution to the wind and you would just go barreling down the, the slope. And you didn't care if you were hitting like, like branches could hit you in the face. You'd go off a jump and land and you wouldn't like risk breaking anything. And now, I mean, Lincoln and I got on this piece of plastic that, here's the other observation about a sledding hill. I think your age directly correlates to how many inches of padding you need between you and the ground, okay? And we're on this, you know, we might as well have been on a piece of aluminum foil, and you have no control going down the sledding hill. Everybody looks like a goober there, everybody. I don't care how cool you try to look. It's, it, you can try to play it cool, but as soon as you start trying to look cool, you're going to slip and you're going down the hill. Anyhow, we're going down this hill, and we hit this bump. Lincoln tumbles off and just at a full run. It's like he lands on his feet, and he just goes sprinting after it, and belly flops on. It was beautiful. And I was like, I'm never doing this again, ever, because <laughs> my rib, and, and it all hurt. I got home. Kara was like, how was it? And Lincoln was like, awesome! And I was like, for Christmas, I want an inflatable recliner to go down <laughs> the sledding hill. Or a mattress. But I'm not doing that again. But it's interesting that there, there is something about the desert. There's something about a sledding hill. Where we just see nothing but maybe misery about it. But as I think back, I truly experienced a connecting moment. Not just with my son, but I thought, wow, God, 
Like so much of my life has changed and I have a totally different perspective of the sledding hill here and yet there was an experience of you in the midst of it. See, preparation is also looking at what, what the current ground is and seeing it could be holy ground. But there's another element of being a witness because a witness saw something. And a witness had some place that they saw it. But what makes a witness a witness? They have something to share. They have a testimony. Let me read to you what Mark, the gospel writer Mark, has to say about this witness. Mark chapter 1. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of, and there's this really scary word for us in there, repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's interesting when you look at the word repentance because the early connotation of repentance was to take a deep sigh and feel great remorse when it first appears. But as you get to the prophets in the Old Testament, the word repent is much less associated with the idea of a feeling. And it's much more associated with the idea of an action. There's an action element to it. In other words, it's maybe you take a sigh, but really, it's turn around. Just turn around and get a different view. But what happens is we get this idea that maybe we got as kids or when we were younger of the word repent. And we think shame and guilt and feel badly and I'm a worthless worm. And yet John, I think John brought a little bit different connotation to this. Let's keep reading. Let me show you why. Mark 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now that's interesting to me because if repent is about guilt and shame and make somebody feel this big, I can't imagine many people would be going out to John the Baptist. But it says the whole countryside went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And why did the people respond? I think, and this is my own personal opinion, I think it had something to do with the next verse. Verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now that just sounds like terrible, doesn't it? But there is something about the attire of John the Baptist that I think says something about his ability to, to feel empathy for the people that were coming out to him. Because this kind of dress was not like what people would wear most of the time. This kind of dress was the dress of mourning and grieving. But do you, do you see what's going on here? It's John who's wearing what we would associate the feelings of it. All he communicated to everybody else was, would you just turn around? Repent. Repent and be baptized because there is something so much more. There's something so much more. I'll wear the clothing of it. I'll wear the grieving. I'll wear the mourning. I'll wear being the outcast or the exception of society or whatever it is. I'll wear all of that as I look at your sin. But for you, I'd invite you to turn around because here's what's at stake. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. In other words, this doesn't end with me. You don't have to answer to me. But he says, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, 
but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was a guy. John was a witness who wanted more for those that he looked around and saw because he could understand their desert. He could understand their dry ground. He had lived it. He wore it. And it's as if John is saying, well, I'm mourning and grieving for what you're going through and what you're doing and how you're living your life. Could I invite you to just turn around? Let me bring all this together for a moment. You want to know what preparing for Christmas is? Preparation is looking around on holy ground and inviting people to turn around. That is preparation. And I would argue that if Christmas is about the arrival of Christ, then preparation for Christmas is about looking around on holy ground and living a life that invites people to turn around. How many uh, parents in here at one time or maybe now, you utilize the discipline of time out with your children? Nobody's going to report you. Don't worry, all right? Us too. And uh, it took years and years of like screwing this up for me to finally start to understand some principles when it comes to time out. But one of the principles of time out, I've come to believe as we're almost done with time out, is empathy. Empathy, because for years what would happen is we'd send one of the children to time out and we'd go, you feel bad. And when you feel bad, you can come out. And sometimes I would go try to talk to our kids and say, well, what have you learned in this time? And I would always get this turning away. I was like, especially Lincoln, the scowl is very real there. He just kind of, and he would turn and face the wall. And it suddenly dawned on me that what if I understood? What if I just understood? It doesn't mean I condone. It doesn't mean that I would, I would do it. Well, and he probably learned it from watching me. But anyhow, sometimes I would just, I've learned, you just sit next to him and say, you must, you must feel a certain way to have acted like that. And in the process of having that conversation, you know, you know what happens? Our kids, as they looked at the wall and folded their arms, suddenly the arms came unfolded. And they'd start the turn. And the reason I was always trying to get them to turn around is because there was, there was something better on the other end of timeout. There was freedom. There was some time together. There was something fun. We were going to go do something. But, but oftentimes, I'm amazed at how many times, even myself as a kid, we don't really want to turn around, do we? I just want to stare at the wall. I don't want to be mad because I feel, I feel, I feel. And John the Baptist looked at people and he said, I'll feel it. Would you just turn around? I'll empathize with how you're feeling. Could you just turn around? To prepare for Christmas, we look around on holy ground and we invite people to turn around. Isn't that so different than meals and deals and ideals at Christmas? I mean, that's a richer experience of Christmas, if you ask me. In fact, if there's one episode in the life of this witness that I think sums it all up, it happens in John chapter 3. It's so interesting. John the Baptist still has these followers, and one day they look across this river, and they see Jesus and his disciples, some of those disciples who used to be with them, baptizing people. And they come to John, and they say, look, John, they're beating us at our game. Everybody's going to them. And John's answer so sums up 
what I believe the life of a witness who prepares the way is about. John chapter 3, verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the, the bridegroom's voice. And then look at this sentence. That joy is mine and it is now complete. You want to know what John recognized here? This was Jesus arriving in their lives. This is John saying, I'm having a very content Christmas. That Jesus can show up on the scene and I can look around. I can recognize that this is an opportunity for this to be holy ground. And I can invite people to turn around and go. Go to him. And he says this, this verse. He must become greater. I must become less. That's a different kind of Christmas, isn't it? That's a very different kind of Christmas. And perhaps the greatest gift. I know this isn't necessarily a whole lot of Christmas passages as we've come to know them. But maybe the greatest gift we could give somebody this Christmas is to prepare the way for them to know Jesus. Years later, John the Gospel writer. Many believe that this John the Gospel writer was one of the two disciples that when John the Baptist said, there he is, the Lamb of God, that it was this writer who went. And so think about it. Years later, John, the gospel writer, is writing this, and he's an old man now. And he's reflecting back on the life of Jesus and his own experience of Jesus. And what does he do? In the opening chapter of his writing, he points at the one who God used to prepare the way. I got to tell you, when you get the opportunity to hear from somebody, to see somebody, come to know, somebody that you looked around and you, you stepped onto holy ground and invited them to turn around, when you see them go to him, it's one of the greatest gifts you'll ever receive. And they will tell you this is the greatest gift you could have given them. That is a Christmas that its contents are a who, not a what. And so as we continue over the next couple weeks, we'll walk through a couple more practices. But I'd invite you to consider this week, could we prepare the way for the advent, for the arrival of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that as you looked around, you could have just done all that you've done without any of us. And yet you chose, in your mighty, mighty grace, you chose to use us. You looked around, and you saw us, and the setting didn't matter. And we didn't matter. You didn't look at our condition. You just loved on us, and you invited us to turn around. And so write that on our hearts this week and every week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.